Well, good morning, Canyon Hills. Good morning. So great to see each and every one of you this morning, and happy December. Man, it is crazy to think today is the first day of December, but it's also crazy to think you only have 24 days left until Christmas arrives. Man, it came so quick. But I am so excited to be here with you all this morning as we kick off this brand new series called Twas the Night Before Christmas. You know, over the years, we've had the opportunity to look at some amazing Christmas series during this time of year, focusing on the birth of Jesus, the wise men, the shepherds, the star, the manger, all of these great elements. But we wanted to do something a little bit different this season, this year. Instead of reading the story like we typically do of Jesus's birth from Luke chapter 2, we wanted to see if we could maybe understand it a little bit better. To take a look at some more of the ins and outs, the story behind the story, to really give us a glimpse of what was going on emotionally, physically, and spiritually in the land before Jesus was born. Specifically, we're going to take a look at what was happening in Bethlehem, in Jerusalem, in Rome on the night before Jesus was born. And as we go through the series, I want you just to keep an eye out for this theme of people being preoccupied or people being so distracted, they kind of miss out on this long awaited Messiah's birth. It's going to be pretty cool as we start to take a look at it. And so I get to kick off the series today by talking about where it all started. We're going to start with Bethlehem and we're titling this one busy in Bethlehem because that's really what was happening there. But before I get too far into it, I just want to ask some of you a question. How many of you have ever missed something that really mattered? And what I mean by this is maybe you missed picking up a child from a sports practice. Maybe you missed a lunch reservation or a meeting with a client. Or maybe you missed somebody's birthday or an anniversary or something else, a holiday even. You know, by the laughter and the, the smirks that I kind of hear coming from the room, odds are that every single one of us has missed something in our lives. Now, I hate being late to things. My wife can attest, I will do whatever I possibly can to avoid being late to something because you never know what you're gonna miss. Usually in those first beginning pieces, there's really important information or something that gets said that you need to know about. And if you're late, you don't know about it at all. And this happens so frequently to us Perfect example, a couple of years ago when I was the high school pastor here, uh, Matt Vargo, who was the junior high pastor, and I, we had received a grant to make some additions to the youth room. And we thought long and hard about what we wanted to do to enhance the appearance for our students. And we ended up putting a sink and some cabinetry in there, and it was beautiful. And with the remaining money, we wanted to replace our old dying projector that you couldn't really see anything on, and it made sermon illustrations difficult. And we just wanted to create a new vibe in the room. So we decided that we would use the rest of our grant money to get these two nice 55-inch TVs up and mounted on the wall. Problem was, the TVs at this time that we were looking at were way outside of what we had left for the grant money. But luckily for us, this was right around Black Friday time. So we decided to save the money to wait until Black Friday to look through all the ads. And finally, we found these doorbuster TVs, 55-inch Toshiba TVs from Best Buy that were a steal of a deal. And we agreed saying, this is what we want to do, and this is how we want to spend that money. So we made a pact to get up at 4 a.m. on Black Friday, to meet at Best Buy over here in Savvy Ranch at 5 a.m., stand in line, brave the cold of the Thanksgiving morning or the Black Friday morning to be able to get these TVs. So we set our alarms in our own homes and get up at four. And I remember I'm making my coffee begrudgingly because that's the only way I would survive that early in the morning. And I get my coffee in my cup and I get in the car and I drive and Matt Vargo and I, we pull into the parking lot at the same time and we're the only two people there. 
nobody else. Like we had seen all these horror stories of people camping out in tents and riots taking place. None of that. Like the workers hadn't even shown up yet. That's how early we were. We we're like, this is crazy. I can't believe this. So I was in my car, he was in his car and we kind of looked at each other and shared this glance. Like I'm not getting out of my car. It's like 20 degrees outside right now. And so he ended up coming into my car and we, cause I had a heater. I don't think he did, but we were just talking about life and ministry. And then we started playing this game on our phone called Boom Beach. And we were just laughing and having fun. And next thing you know, I look up and there's a line that's formed. And I'm like, oh no, but it's okay. There's only like maybe 10, 15 people in line are like, we got this, we're good to go. So we get out of the car, we go and we stand in line and it's freezing cold outside, trying to make friends with the people next to us who we may have to beat for TVs later. Um, but you know, all this fun camaraderie would happen. And just before it opened, the manager comes out and says, hey, with the doorbuster items, we're doing a very limited release this morning. And we'll actually be releasing some more later on through the day. So we have 10 of them available. And so the first 10 people in line will be the first 10 people who receive this. We're like, sweet, this is great. Not everybody's going to want this doorbuster item because we've been kind of listening strategically to what people are waiting for in line in front of us. We're like, we got this. We're, we're sold. It's good. We were 10 and 11 in line. And so we only ended up getting one TV. And so frustrated, I was a little bit angry thinking, oh my gosh, like if we had just been there earlier, if we weren't playing that stupid game, like everything would have been fine and we would have been able to get into Best Buy and get these TVs. So we tried to figure out what are we going to do? So we go into Best Buy and we find this other TV, the exact same TV that we as the doorbuster, but it was full price. It wasn't even marked down at all. So we ended up buying a full price TV and the discounted doorbuster TV, which was already like at the extent of our grant money. But the reason I bring the story up is because I think there has to be a word for this dynamic of missing out on things in life because we're too preoccupied. We're too busy to realize what's really going out. And as a result of that, we miss out on maybe some important things that are happening in our lives. And this is exactly what was happening in Bethlehem on the night before Jesus was born. And so I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter two, as we're going to be reading through the birth story of Jesus Christ. And it's typical during this time of year that we actually read through this story as a church, but we want to take it a step further this morning. We want to really get into the story to help us understand what was really going on, why Jesus was born in Bethlehem, why he was born in a stable versus somewhere else, what really sets the stage to understand the severity of the story. No, if you're like me at all, my family has a tradition where every Christmas Eve, we gather together around the fireplace with some hot cocoa and we read this passage just to kind of set our hearts and our minds right before Christmas happens. But I wonder how many of us just read this story as a formality. We just read through it thinking, okay, we read the birth story of Jesus. That's great, but we don't really understand what's happening here. And so my goal this morning is to help shed some light on what was happening in Bethlehem on the night before Jesus was born. Let's go ahead and pick up. In Luke chapter 2, verse 1, it says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. Now, there's a couple things that we need to know right off the bat here. And the first one is during this time in Roman history, it was ruled by several different military generals, these leaders of the Roman Empire. But as power started to grow, as the expansive land started to get bigger and bigger, so did their lust for power, their lust for control, and they ended up going to battle against each other and killing one another off. Until one person was left standing by the name of Gaius Octavius. 
Now, most of us, we don't really recognize that name, but we know him better by his other name, Caesar Augustus. See, Caesar was a name that was bestowed upon him through adoption by his uncle, and Augustus was a title that was granted to him on behalf of the Senate. You see, during this time, Rome's empire had never been this large before. And so when the Senate got together and they said, man, if we're going to have one ruler over this entire Roman empire, he's got to be someone special. He's got to be someone that has a name that stands out, that strikes power and fear into the name of the people who are living in this empire. And so they got together with Octavius and said, how about we call you Caesar, the king of Rome? And Octavius says, no, I don't like that because the founder of Rome was known as the king of Rome. And I don't want to be associated with that or mistake. I want my own legacy. I said, okay, how about we call you Caesar, the dictator of Rome? He's like, no, no, I don't like that. It just doesn't sound right either. And they said, how about Caesar Augustus? He says, ooh, I like that. It's got a good ring to it. But what does it mean? It says, Augustus means godlike, like a god, meaning you are so powerful. You are so influential. You're like a god living upon the earth. He says, ooh, I like that. I want that name for myself. And he took this name and became the most powerful person pretty much on the face of the earth during this time. And there was one other really influential leader in this story. In the eastern provinces of Rome, there was a guy by the name of Mark Anthony. And Mark Anthony and Gaius Octavius, they had kind of grown up together and they went to battles together. They fought alongside of each other. But after some family drama and some betrayal, it kind of put them against one another. And they end up going to war. And eventually, long story short, Mark Anthony ends up dying. But Caesar Augustus now has a problem. You see, the eastern province was very loyal to Mark Anthony. But he was now the undisputed sole leader of the entire Roman Empire. How was he going to make sure everybody in every province of Rome knew who was really in control, who really had the power? What a better way than to tax your subjects. They say, you have to pay a tribute unto me. I'm going to tax you as part of being in a Roman territory, and you have to pay unto me what is rightfully mine. And so he issues this decree that the entire Roman world be taxed or to pay a tribute unto Rome. And this is the first thing of its kind. We had never before in history had somebody sitting on the throne in Rome issuing a decree, making a law that the entire Roman world would have to bow in subjection to. It was crazy. And Luke even goes to say in the original Greek that this is the first of his decrees, which means he liked it so much he kept making these decrees because of the power that he had. He kept doing it, and there's all kinds of documents that support these decrees of Caesar Augustus. It's crazy when you start to look at it. But he also had another problem. You see, he knew if he were just to issue this taxation amongst the land, people would riot. People would revolt. Nobody wants to pay a tax. Nobody wants to pay tribute. I mean, why? Why would you do this? So he had to get creative in how he was going to allow this to partake. And it actually came in the form of a census saying that we're going to have you go to your lands and register your land, your territory, your inheritance, and we're going to tax you based off of your land. It's like a property tax, if you will, or an HOA fee for renters and different things. And it kind of made sense. But a lot of historians and scholars believe that there was another kind of hidden reasoning or hidden thing behind all of this. They say it's twofold. First, it was if you would register in a census as part of a Roman province, it means that Rome could distribute its military for protection equally amongst the land based off of populace. Now, if you had a lot of people over here, there would be more of a military from Rome stationed in your city. If there was a smaller population, you would be kind of like an outpost of Rome. 
And it was all for protection because there was a lot of warfare ravaging the land during this time, which people would like to know that they were protected. The second part that historians believe is that the census made sense to people because if you could register as a Roman province under a Roman leader, it means that you became a quote unquote unofficial Roman citizen, which means you would be granted the benefits and the blessings of the Roman empire. And that was appealing to people. And that's why it makes sense for us that people would actually travel from place to place to register for the census because there was something in it for them. There was a benefit. They gained something from it, even though they technically were losing because they're having to pay this tribute to Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar knew that he couldn't just sit on the throne and issue this decree and expect people just to follow it on their own willpower. So we actually put the responsibility upon the governors in the land. And in Syria and Palestine, there was this governor by the name of Quirinius. He was kind of newer to the leadership, and he was interested in knowing who was where in his territory and his lands. So he felt the pressure from Rome and some obligation from Caesar. And so he enforced this census upon the land. And we actually have this document that we found in Egypt, a papyrus, an original artifact that gives attestation to this and says that the people had to travel about every 14 years to register for a census completely confirming this account. It's really cool when you take a look at history and the proof that goes to support the Bible. But nevertheless, Quirinius, he issues this decree and it goes out all throughout Palestine, throughout Syria, throughout Judea, but he decides to do it in a Jewish way rather than the Roman way. The Roman way was wherever you are, where you currently are living, register for the census. The Jewish way was, well, where you were born, you have birthright, you have inheritance. So it makes sense to go to your birth town, your birthplace and register for the census because that's where you come from. And that's where all of your money and your taxation is actually tied into. So in this little province of Rome, far off from Rome, far off from the Roman capital, about 2,700 miles by foot, 1,300 miles by boat, was a little unheard town called Nazareth. And inside of this little unheard of town called Nazareth was an even younger unheard couple by the name of Mary and Joseph who had ties to the house of David. And when this decree went out and affected the entire Roman Empire, it also affected them. You see, Joseph had some ties to Bethlehem. And the census would mean that he would have to leave Nazareth and travel all the way to Bethlehem to register for the census. And we actually see this as well in that Egyptian artifact. It actually tells us that people would go to their hometowns, their birth towns, in order to register for the census, once again confirming this account. But nevertheless, this census would have made things incredibly chaotic, and Bethlehem would have become a very busy, busy place. A Jewish historian by the name of Flavius Josephus, he actually writes, and he says that during this time, biblical Bethlehem was about eight quarters long. And that's just about the size of Disneyland, not including California Adventure. So it wasn't a very big place. But as you can see, it's hills are kind of nestled with homes, very kind of clustered together. The homes are built in. There was a marketplace, some government buildings, but most of it was just open fields, open land, as shepherding and livestock were the two largest trades that lived inside of Bethlehem. And we know, based off of some records, that during this time, it was probably home to an active resident count of about 280 people. Now, this doesn't include the 300 to 500 people who would have grown up in Bethlehem and then moved away looking for work because there wasn't that much to do inside of Bethlehem. And what we miss out on the story 
that's in between the lines that we don't see, that's so important for us to know this morning is this. During the time of the census, on the night before Jesus was born, you've got close to 600 to 800 people coming into a town that only has room for maybe 300, 350 max. Bethlehem was a very, very busy place. And that's why Luke says when Mary and Joseph arrive, there's no room for them. There's no guest house. There's no inn. There's no hostel. There's no hotel. There's no Airbnb. There's nothing, not even a relative's floor that they can sleep on. Nothing is available for them. And so they end up having to go and stay in a place that's typically reserved for livestock, a stable. And Mary, who is pregnant, is going to end up giving birth inside of this feeding trough in a manger. I mean, talk about missing what matters the most. These people in Bethlehem were so busy, so preoccupied with trying to put people into their homes and make this living and buying, trading, all these things that they are oblivious to this very pregnant woman named Mary, who's about to give birth, on the brink of giving birth. And you know, not if this was bad enough, the journey that went from Nazareth to Bethlehem was probably not the easiest of journeys either. It's about 80 miles between the two of them, and it would have gone through Judea and Samaria and taken about four days to walk. But Luke gives us some insight into how they actually travel there. Look at this next part of the passage. He says, So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now, there's two different routes that they could have taken during this time. One was called the King's Highway. It was a very popular road. It's where the kings and the Roman military would march to and from war. There was a lot of traveling that took place on this road, a lot of people going back and forth. Merchants used this road, but it was way off kind of in the middle of the desert. It was a straight route that went between places, so it wouldn't really make sense for them to travel on this road. The other road is a place called the Galilean Hills Highway. And it was a little bit more narrow. It's about 79 miles long between Nazareth and Bethlehem, but it went through multiple towns, including Judea. And we actually see from Luke, he says it went through Judea, which tells us this is the route that he probably went through. Now, this makes sense to us because what we need to know is that Joseph was a carpenter. In Nazareth, that's what he did as his trade, his profession. He was a carpenter. And so to be told that you have to register in your hometown for a census, that's a four-day walk away, a X amount of days trying to register, and then a four-day walk back means he's out of work for a week and a half to two weeks. During this time, that's a lot of time, especially for a sole income earner who's trying to provide for Mary and this new baby that's about to be born. So odds are that Joseph would have taken a donkey with him and loaded it up with some wood and some of his carpentry materials. So that way, as they went from town to town on their way to Bethlehem, that he would still be able to sell things, to fix things, to make a living, to gain some money and offset what they're about to lose. Not only that, we need to know that Mary was probably about 39 weeks pregnant at this point. I cannot imagine that. My wife, Tiffany, is 34 weeks pregnant. I cannot imagine sitting her down saying, hey, honey, guess what? Um, we got to go and pay tax to some complete stranger I don't know, and it's going to be like a four-day walk. So <laughs> let's have fun, right? That would not go over well. I would not be up here preaching today if I approached her with that, right? I would probably be at home crying at that point. It would not have been a fun scenario whatsoever to be a part of at all. And it's crazy to think about that. Mary, 39 weeks pregnant, carrying about a seven and a half pound baby, would not have wanted to walk. 
So odds are Joseph said, okay, in addition to the building supplies, why don't you ride on this donkey? Which I don't know if that would be more comfortable because on a donkey, that four-day journey, it's got to be hard on the baby. Or if she sat sideways, there's going to be back pain. Her ankles are going to be swollen. She's going to be nauseous. She's going to have Braxton Hicks. This is real stuff, folks. I'm going through this right now, you know? Love you. Um, so it's, it's this really incredible thing. And I just cannot imagine this whole scenario unfolding. And finally, by the time that they get to Bethlehem, they're probably exhausted. They're tired. They're hurting. Odds are they've been arguing for the last couple days. You know, they've just been fighting about everything that's going on inside the land. Whether or not that's because Joseph wanted his turn on the donkey or she's mad because he didn't ask for directions. Who knows, right? But they're just upset. And they get there and they're like, finally, we're here. We're in Bethlehem. We're ready to just like find a place to settle down and rest. And it's just, it's closed doors. After closed door after closed door. Nobody cares. There's nobody welcoming. Oh, you're so cute. You've got a baby here. Let me awkwardly pet your belly because I'm a stranger and it's just some cultural thing to do, right? It's just this weird thing. No, none of that happens. They're rejected. They're neglected. And that's hard to understand. But look what Luke says next. It says, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, she wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So they get there, and I bet you there was this point where Mary looks at Joseph and she says, I'm done. I can't go any further. I am expecting, I am in labor right now. We have to find some place to rest. So Joseph in panic mode, knowing that every home, every place he could possibly sit is taken, is not available, can't go anywhere. He says, you know what? I just need to find shelter at this point, the bare necessity. And so they find this stable, sheltered from the storm. And it's there that they lay down and they begin to rest. And the baby is born. The Messiah is brought into the world. Nobody's there. There's no midwife helping with the pregnancy. There's nobody to celebrate and cheer alongside of them. Nobody to help them in those first couple moments of a brand new baby being born. It's just the two of them. Because everybody else is too busy and too distracted to even know what had just happened the one person they had been waiting their entire life to meet, the one person they wanted in their homes more than anybody else, they were oblivious, had already arrived. It was already there. But a birth announcement did go out. And it's really interesting as Luke wraps up this story of the birth of Jesus of how it goes out. Look at this next part. It says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. And so they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. 
See, the people in Bethlehem were so busy. They were so preoccupied trying to get their checklist, their to-do list done by hosting family and friends, by opening up their homes for people to say, by trying to make a buck for themselves, that they missed out on what had happened the most, on the most important part of their life. But outside of the busy hustle and bustle of Bethlehem, in the isolated, cold, quiet hills were these shepherds watching over their flocks by night. Now, we wouldn't think shepherds would be the first people to hear the announcement that the Messiah, the true king of the world, has been born. They were the least of these people. They were considered nothings. Nobody really liked them. Nobody really knew what they did. They were just people out in the field. It's kind of straggly, kind of creepy looking when you look at them. Nobody would ever think that they would be important enough to receive such an important announcement. But I can't help but wonder if it's because everybody else was too busy. And so as we kind of wrap up our time this morning, I think there's a couple things that we can learn from the shepherds and how they responded to this situation, how they responded to the announcement of Jesus's birth. And there's a couple things that we can take away as warnings from the people of Bethlehem to where we don't fall into the same suit, where we become so preoccupied, so distracted this season, this Christmas time of year, that we miss out on what matters the most. The first thing we see in this story is this. The shepherds were in a place to hear from God. The shepherds were in a place to hear from God. You see, the very nature of their jobs had them out in the hillsides, isolated from the rest of the town in the stillness of the night. But you know what? It was the perfect place for them to hear the word of God speak to them. Now, odds are, I doubt they wanted to be there. I asked Alexa yesterday as I was studying my message what the weather was like, and she says it was like 50s in the days and 30s at nights. I doubt the shepherds wanted to be sitting on a hilltop, looking down into Bethlehem, seeing the flicker of light as the people gathered around warmth, as they heard the clanking of dishes as people were fellowshipping and sharing a warm meal with one another, as they heard coins changing hands, as people were bartering and selling and buying things, even though they were stuck out in the fields just watching over sheep. It's the last place they probably wanted to be on the night before Jesus was born. They found themselves on a hilltop above Bethlehem on the outside looking in. And I can't help but think that maybe there's some of us this Christmas season who are going to find ourselves like the shepherds on the outside looking in. Or maybe you're looking at your Facebook or your Instagram feeds and family gatherings and you see friends and people gathering and you don't get invited to it. And it hurts. You want to be a part of it, but you can't. Or maybe you lost a loved one this year or last year and you're not quite sure what Christmas is going to look like. Or maybe somebody moved away, an important family member, that you have no idea how you're going to do this Christmas. That family, that fellowship is gone and it'll never be the same. Or maybe you do have family and there is a party, but you realize because of all the drama, it's harder to go and attend than it is to not go. Who would miss you anyway? Nobody cares anymore. See, at some point in our lives during the season, we find ourselves in these silent nights of our own, where we're on the outside looking in, wishing that we were a part of all the things that are happening. And this is where the shepherds found themselves. But the, so, the coolest thing about this story is it was right where God wanted them to be. Because in that stillness, in that silence, is when he spoke to them. And he revealed to them the greatest news they had ever heard in their life. Yeah, they probably knew the prophecies. They knew the stories that a Messiah was going to be born, but they never probably thought they would ever be a part of it. 
And yet here they are front row to what was about to happen. Dead center. And I encourage you, I challenge you, and this is for myself as well, that we don't become like the people of Bethlehem and are so focused on our to-do lists, getting our family gatherings together, having people come and go through our homes, that we preoccupy ourselves so much this season that we miss out on Jesus, that we miss out on hearing what God may want to say to us, maybe a healing that God wants to reveal to us, maybe a change of life that God's trying to show us. See, if we're too busy and we're too preoccupied to listen to God, you're never going to hear him speak. But if you make the time intentionally this season, this Christmas time, to stop your busyness and to listen for God, I guarantee you he's going to reveal something amazing to you, just like he did to these shepherds. The second thing we see from the shepherds is this. They were in a place and they were willing to act upon what God had told them. They weren't too busy to listen. They weren't too busy to respond either. You see, they didn't just receive this announcement, this birth announcement, this invitation. It went so much further than this. And they did something about it. In Luke chapter 2, verse 15, it says this. Once they heard this announcement, they look at each other and say, let's go see this thing that has happened. Something had changed in their lives. They were ready to actually act upon it, to do something about it. And I can't help but believe, I am convinced that if we take time this season to focus in on the birth of Jesus Christ, we're going to be challenged to reflect on what the real meaning of Christmas is for us. Do we do it just because it's become a commercialized holiday? That we're all about the gifts and the gift giving and the family gatherings? Or do we do it because we know that there's something greater behind it? that we've already received the greatest gift we could ever possibly imagine in the birth of Jesus Christ. And I can't help but believe that if we take time to truly look at the birth of Jesus Christ, that our lives, they'll be changed. They'll be changed into something truly amazing. You see, God demonstrated his love to us by sending his son down to earth in the form of a baby. And that baby grew up to become Jesus. And that same Jesus demonstrated his love to us by going to the cross and sacrificing his life so you and I can live. And because of that sacrifice, God then again demonstrated his love to us by setting us free from sin, from fear, from bondage, from slavery, from doubt, from worry, from all of these things. He says, I have a free gift for you and it's freedom. It's life, everlasting life. It's true peace and joy unlike anything this world can ever give you. And it's a free gift to you if you're willing to accept it. If you're willing to grab a hold of it and make it yours. See, I can't help believe that once you hear that story, you look at the birth of Jesus, that your life wouldn't be changed. I mean, can you imagine the shepherds hearing this news that Jesus had been born, where he was born, who he was born to, and they could see it down in the town and just like, meh. Let's go back to normal. No, it says that the birth announcement of Jesus, it changed their plans. Actually, it determined their plans. They didn't just stay. They said, let us go and see this thing. They leave their mountaintops. They fight through the busy crowds of Bethlehem, like trying to get to the castle during Christmas time at Disneyland during the Christmas parade. It's almost impossible, right? You're pushing your way through the crowds, but they finally make it there and they see this baby and they fall to their knees because they have a real encounter with Jesus. A real experience that changes their life. 
so much so that they get up from there and they can't even contain it. They go running back into Bethlehem and telling everybody what they had seen. And yeah, probably some people were skeptical. Probably some people slammed the doors. They didn't want to hear the message. Some people probably didn't care. Maybe some people were amazed, but it didn't stop them. And I can't think of a better way for us to celebrate Christmas this year than to really experience Jesus and to tell someone about that experience. Yeah, the family gatherings, they're great. The food that's shared with each other, the gift giving and the gift receiving, that's all wonderful. But if we find ourselves so busy, so preoccupied, so distracted like the people of Bethlehem were, we're going to miss out on the greatest gift ever. And we need to realize that maybe our priorities are off this season. So I challenge you and I encourage you just to think as you go through the next couple weeks, as you prepare your hearts and your homes, why are you doing it? Are you intentionally taking the time to stop and listen for Jesus? To look at the birth of Jesus, to reflect upon how he's changed your life, the gifts that he has given to you this year, and to celebrate and rejoice in the life that he has given to you. Don't be so busy you miss out on the most important part of life. Would you pray with me? Father, we are just so humbled. God, so honored just to be included in all of this. Father, it's so easy for us to be so distracted, preoccupied, so busy during this time of year that we just kind of gloss through this story without realizing the severity of it, Father. The impact that it has to us, Father, the lessons that we can learn as we are a busy people. God, we love to surround ourselves. We love to fill ourselves with busy things in this life. But God, I pray that you allow us to stop, to breathe, to listen for you. God, I pray that you start transforming our hearts today as we go into the next couple of weeks to intentionally make time every day to hear from you. And then the power to act upon what it is that you've called us to act upon, to do what it is that you've called us to do, Father. And that's simply to go and tell people about the life-changing experiences that we've had in you. We love you, Father, and pray this in your name.